0: How many people in here have been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. Over it? it? (laughs) Okay. Um, How many of you went to the Grand Canyon for the first time as an adult? Not as a kid, but as an adult. Okay, for those of you who are adults, how well did the pictures and the descriptions that you saw measure up to what you saw? 100%. Did it get catch it all, or was there like more? No, he flew over it, okay. I got to go to the Little Grand Canyon. It's in Georgia. <laughs> it's really just a really, really big washed-out gully is what it is. Um, lots of trees. It's not near the same. I have not seen the Grand Canyon. Sonia's seen the Grand Canyon. My daughter Allison's seen the Grand Canyon. I thought you said you went there. You guys traveled there. Yeah, well, that's what's new. Um, I I have yet to see it, Um, only pictures. But words don't describe something that you see like that well enough. Even pictures don't capture it. And it's not just that. I mean, if you've been to the mountains, you've been to the ocean, all those great things that God has created in this world, our descriptions and our pictures just don't measure up. And so and so, he, what we just read in Hebrews, Hebrews tell us that the temple that Solomon made and the tabernacle that Moses made are poor comparisons to God's holy temple in heaven. And now imagine trying to describe God's temple to us. It it, it just doesn't work. Yet we can still learn about God's heaven and his heavenly worship. So if you are able to stand, we're going to stand and read God's word once again in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which are all of them. So this is a relatively short chapter. But Revelation chapter 4, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on it. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 elders, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and crowned on, with golden crowns on their heads. Out of the throne come flashes of lightning. And sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature was like a calf, and the third had a face like that of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And in day and night they did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne, to him who lives for forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast down their throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of, you, of your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Lord God, as we attempt to stumble through these words And try to find meaning in them. Just give us your grace and your glory. Because you are holy. And I thank you, Lord, for each one that's here today. As we worship you through this sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to look at three aspects of godly worship. Three aspects of godly worship. And with each of these aspects... We're going to see these throughout all eleven verses, but it's not going to be chronological or consecutive. We're going to go through and and, and kind of pick and choose as each one at each of these aspects because it's spread out throughout these verses. And so, the first aspect of of godly worship we'll see is the worship of God in heaven. Now, we both we all know that God is not limited to heaven. Um, he is everywhere. Heaven is not a place. But we also know heaven is not a place that we can get to. We can't get there with a starship. We can't get there with a time machine. It says, always existed. And we see glimpses of this heaven in God when you read Isaiah chapter 6. You can see glimpses of this when you read Ezekiel chapters 1 and then later in chapter 10. You see glimpses of this in Daniel chapter 7. So, this isn't the first and only glimpse that we have in Scripture of heaven. Even as the psalmists recognized their God in heaven and where He sat and with the cherubims in heaven. And so, this is just John's glimpse of heaven. It's not the only glimpse of heaven that we have in Scripture. The descriptions, in some ways, are similar. We got similar things. And and, but they're not identical. Part of that is because God's purpose with each man that was brought to heaven, that got to see it. Part of the reason, too, is they're different men, so they notice different things. If we all had a report, it was stopped right now and reported what we did in church today, your reports are going to be similar, but they're not going to be identical. You know, Some of you may notice me walking back and forth multiple times. You're standing in the back, and others wouldn't notice that at all. Different things you would notice about different people. But the first thing that we notice is that we notice that John is called into heaven. You see that in verse 1. When a voice is speaking to him. The same voice that was in chapter 1. But now it says, come up here. Come up here. This is unique. When I said those other scriptures, this one is unique. Isaiah just starts spouting the vision. He doesn't say anything about it that he was even seeing the vision. He just starts talking about it. Daniel says, I saw a vision. Ezekiel had a storm coming at him. And this vision of God in his throne came out of that storm as it came approached him. But here John is called up. Now, when John saw, when we were back in chapter 1 and verse 10, it says John was in the Spirit and he had a vision. And what we talked about in John 1, all he saw there was Jesus in the temple. But this time, it says there he saw a door to heaven, and he said, somebody said, come up. And it was the same voice that was in chapter 1, which means it's the voice of Jesus. And it said, come up here. But what does that mean? Is, is, so did his body, did he bodily get to go? Because it says in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Or did his only his Spirit go? Well, you know, Paul talks about that. And uh, in, 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 in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. This is where John's going, the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So Paul couldn't explain what happened. When somebody he knew, whether it was himself or somebody else he knew, that got called up to heaven. We think he's probably talking about himself. But he even he didn't know, was it a physical body went to heaven or was it just his spiritual body? Or was it just a, a, just a vision that he was having? But God knows. And so we're going to have to be settled with that. We can't explain everything about everything, although there are some who try. And Christians throughout the ages have tried. It's it's it's, it's human nature. That's what we want to do. We want to explain stuff. We don't like not knowing. To some people, saying "I don't know" is just like oh, "I can't do that." But sometimes that's we got to say that. But something else about this um, is that. What is this calling up? Some have said, well, this is the rapture. This is when the rapture happens. Yeah, no. Why? Even John MacArthur, he, he, he's a man that preaches the rapture. He says, yes, the rapture happens. This isn't the verse you get it from. There are plenty of other verses. So this isn't the verse you get it from. But he was called up into heaven. And what is the first thing he sees? A throne. That's the first thing he notices, is a throne. And he notices somebody sitting on the throne, but he doesn't name him. In Daniel, when he sees somebody on the throne, Daniel says it's he's the ancient of days. But John doesn't give us that description. Daniel does, John doesn't. But John gives us a different description. He says the one who's on the throne has the appearance like jasper stone and sardius stones. It's like, what are these? Some translations have different names for those stones. I've seen a translation that says instead of jasper, it says diamond. Well, why would it say diamond? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 21, when John is describing the new Jerusalem, he says that it's a stone, crystal clear jasper. He said, Jasper's crystal clear. I did a look up on, online. It's like, Jasper, Jasper is not a clear stone. But we don't know how the ancient Romans classified all their gemstones. And so maybe they called a the diamond a form of Jasper. Or this is something unworldly that we just don't know about. He's trying to find ways to describe who he was seeing on the stone, on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the throne. And so one, he says, Jasper. And later he says, Jasper is a crystal clear stone. But then he says, Sardius. And depending on your translation, it might say, cor- you know, what's the other words, cornelian or ruby, because all those are red stones. So think something clear and something red, describing who God is. What he when he visually saw him, he didn't say. Now, another, I think, I think it was in Daniel that says he has white hair. Here he doesn't mention that. He doesn't say anything about how many, what color his hair, if he had, how many arms he had, how many legs he had. He said his appearance was like gemstones, and he starts naming gemstones off to describe them. I don't know if I don't think I've ever described anybody with gemstones. Okay, As a physical appearance. I mean, maybe they as precious as a diamond, but not physically. You don't describe them with gemstones. But here, John was searching for words, and he describes God with gemstones. With Jasper and Sardidius. But we don't know exactly what he saw. He's going, this is like, this is like the appearance of... And then he said, around it was a rainbow. Now, the the Greek word there for rainbow could also mean halo. So what's a rainbow and a halo? Well, a rainbow is like half a halo. A halo is a full circle. A rainbow is just a half a circle. We tend to think of halos as being horizontal and a rainbow being vertical. Either way, it's amazing what he saw. And he says this rainbow was like an emerald, so it's more green in color, not like when we think of a rainbow, which is a spectrum of, 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 of the spectrum of the, of the visible light. And it's translated rainbow because Ezekiel also mentions a rainbow around God's throne in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 21. And it's so amazing. But... If you really think about it, that's not really much of a clear description. He's like Jasper. He's like Sardidius. He's like an emerald. But Can you draw a picture from that? Can you make a statue with it? Can you sculpt a statue with that description? No. But it's amazing, isn't it? It's something we, it's, we can't describe it. You can't even picture it. And this is who God is. He's not just the man upstairs. And what's going on? And ver- Go down to verse 5. Like I said, we're not going to go verse by verse necessarily, but we're going to look at all the verses. And what's coming out of the throne? Flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. So there's three descriptions there. So there's lightning and thunder, but in the middle, there's sounds or rumbles. What is that? I don't know. But it's a light show. It's a sound and light show. It's impressive. Better than we can make with the best sound equipment we have and the best instruments. But there's something, there's lights and flashings, there's peals of thunder, there's other sounds that are filling in the gaps that are coming from the throne. It didn't say there were words, distinct words. I don't know if they, they could have been. They were so loud and so thunderous you couldn't understand them. I don't know. Anybody keeping track how many times I'm saying that today? Um, <clears throat> Darren mentioned that I said that a lot of times last time too. Um, it's not in my notes. I don't have, I don't know anywhere in my notes. <laughs> What's, what's right next to the, 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 the throne with this lightning and thunder and other sounds is seven torches or seven lamps burning. But it says, these are the seven spirits of God. But wait a minute. Back in chapter 1, we had seven lamps, and it said it was the seven churches. So which is it? Is the, are lamps churches or are the lamps the spirits of God? That's part of the challenge when you're looking at the prophecies and looking through revelations. The symbols don't always mean the same thing every time. The seven lamps in chapter 1 are the seven churches because Jesus said they were. Here it says the seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. Why? Because it says they were. Later, in other places, you'll say seven lamps and it doesn't say what they are. So how do you figure out which one's which? Well, often by context, and sometimes you've got to like throw up your hands and go, "I don't know." <laughs> but it can't just go. Well, it was seven, the seven lamps were this, this time, so it has to be that every single time. And whatever the symbol is, you can't always do that. And sometimes scripture explains it out for you, and sometimes it doesn't. And so it's a frustration. But people, when they want to make it, go, it's got to be this. Why? Because that makes sense in my head. All right. Can we wrap our minds around an eternal God? Can you wrap your minds around this throne that we've just described? If I all passed out colored pencils and pads of paper and said, everybody draw what you just read, do you think we'd all draw the same thing? Because it's, it's it's indescribable, and then finally we see something else around the throne in verse six. So we saw the stones, we saw the lightning and the thunder, we saw the lamps. Now we see before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. So what was around the throne? Some sort of sea, or something like a sea. It's like, well, how can the sea be there? Because if you go back to Genesis, or Genesis, Revelation, another end of the book, Revelation, you go back to the end of the book, 21.1, when John is describing the new heaven and the new earth, he says, and there is no longer any sea. In the Jewish thinking, and in in Scripture's thinking, the sea represents evil. As we go through Revelation, where does the dragon come from? The sea. The sea represents chaos. It represents evil. It is a dangerous place, especially in the ancient world. Sailors died at sea. Often they go and they never come back, and nobody ever knew what happened to them. They just disappeared. Look at Jonah. He was thrown into the sea, into the belly of the beast. Why? Because he was running from God. He got thrown into the sea. And when he turned and repented and said, Yes, God, I'll follow you, he got regurgitated out of the sea. And he went and did what God told him to do. He still whined about it, but he went and did what God told him to do. It's God that good to know that God can use whiny pastors. So, um, the sea is chaos, but this says that here is a sea. How do you reconcile the two? But notice about this sea, it's not turbulent. There are no waves. It's crystal clear. It's not dirty like our lakes. We get a glimpse of it in in. Another glimpse of this same sea, if you go to uh, Revelation 15. In Revelation 15:2, it says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. How many of you have successfully stood on Lake Smithville Lake? Don't happen, you sink. Because the sea is evil. But God's sea you can stand on. What's it made out of? We don't know. It doesn't say. It says it looked like glass, it looked like crystal, but we don't know what the actual substance was. But it says here you can stand on it. It's not turbulent, it's calm. It doesn't destroy. It uplifts. So God's sea is not like the sea we have on this earth. Ezekiel saw this same type of thing in Ezekiel one twenty two, but he described it differently. He says, Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. He described it up above, like it was in the sky. So which one is it? Is it a sea that's below us or is it in the sky above us? Or were they just looking at it from different angles? Or does it encompass all of it? The sky's not any better than the sea, right? What comes from the sky? Storms? Floods? Wind you know I mean I mean, even as in physics, the sky the, the, the air around us is, you can, is, is much like water. It's, you describe it the same way. They have the same um, dynamics. It's, it's like a sea of air. And so God's sea is calm, whether it's above us or below us, whichever one it is, it's calm. It doesn't destroy, it's beautiful. Some people have tried to describe the sea as, well, this is kind of like the Red Sea. You know, God made that. No, it's not that. Some people have said, well, in the temple, there was a giant basin of water that was next to the altar. Maybe this is like the basin that we see described in the Old Testament. Maybe, but I kind of doubt it. This is something altogether different. What is its full purpose? We don't know. But here we see the calm of heaven. Even though there's peals of thunder and lightning, the sea is calm. Isn't that the way Jesus is? What did Jesus do when he was on the storm on the boat? He slept. Because he knew that storm wasn't going to overtake him. So, even in the midst of loud and chaos, we can be calm with God. And so, what? In Hebrews, the writer tells us that the earthly temple is but a shadow of the things of heaven. Here, we are getting an out of focus, grainy snapshot of heaven, and it's still more awesome than anything we have on earth. Praise God. The heavenly temple, remember he's writing to people who are facing persecution. God's heavenly temple cannot be demolished by government forces who hate Jesus the Messiah. The heavenly temple cannot be destroyed by any storms or earthquakes or floods on earth. The heavenly temple will not decay and need repairs from old age like churches on earth that we know. The worship of God in heaven is the center of heaven. The second aspect of heavenly worship is all creatures will worship God in heaven. All creatures. In places in Scripture, we find out that trees can clap their hands, rocks will cry out, donkeys can see angels and react in fear to them. We know birds can bring food to God's prophets as he did to Elijah. And God sent birds to Israel nearly every day for 40 years to feed them. In heaven, we see both men and heavenly beings worshiping him. In verse 4, John sees 24 elders, and around the throne were 24 elders. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Each of these these elders wore white and had crowns, gold crowns. Why? Why? Well, we know throughout Scripture, Jesus, one, Jesus is described as wearing white. Why does he wear white? Because he is sinless and he is pure. The saints of God are given white clothes in heaven. Why? Because their sins were forgiven and they've been purified by the blood of Jesus. But who are these 24 elders? We don't get a list of names, do we? Scripture doesn't tell us. They're not named. 24 is not a number we find in the Bible often. I did do a search. It does pop up, but not anything important. But we do know the number 12 is in the Bible often. 24, 12, twice. Well, what's 12? Well, we have the 12 sons of Jacob that became the tribes of Israel. That's that's pretty important. We have the twelve apostles, twelve disciples that Jesus appointed that He taught. Well, there's there's two sets of twelve, right? Maybe it's that that's what it is. But John is the one witnessing this, right? Isn't he one of John's Jesus's disciples? He's not. He didn't say I was one of the twenty four elders. He, he sees twenty four other people, not himself. Now, could God? do that i'm sure he could but nothing is mentioned about who these elders were anything about their who they are some people have tried to say that they're angels well these are just 12 24 angelic beings but angelic beings aren't given white clothes they might be shiny but they're not given white clothes and no angel is ever described with a crown Crowns are described throughout the New Testament as a, as a reward in life. In the Roman Empire, crowns, if, if you won a sporting event, a marathon or a different sporting event, you were given a, a crown made out of um, leaves and, and, and things. It was a perishable crown. Paul talks about it. This is not a perishable crown. These are golden crowns, these are valuable, these are signs of authority. So who are they? Well, if I had to guess, which is all I can do, I'd say there are 24 elders representing Old Testament and New Testament saints from, from, from throughout time. Which, which 24 of them? I don't know. Are they names that if we, read, if we got the names, it's like, oh, I know who that guy is. We read about him in the Old Testament. Or maybe it's a New Testament person. We've read about him in history. Maybe. Maybe or maybe it's a nameless saint that served and was never recognized on earth but God recognized him and made him a, uh, an elder in heaven because God looks at things more differently than we do but they're not alone those 24 elders who have their own thrones looking at the throne of God are not alone they're with four creatures Verse 7, it depends on your translation. Some say creatures, some say beasts. I think the best translation is it's just a living being. It's something we can't describe. A beast or a creature kind of gives it an earthly feel to it. This is nothing earthly about these creatures. In verse 7, at the end of verse 6, it says, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a calf. The third creature was like a face that was of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. What in the world are these things? Um, In verse 8, it says, In the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within. Once again, how do you draw these things? Ezekiel describes them in a little bit uh, better detail, but you still can't draw them. These four living things. I mean, just think about it. eyes all around. That just kind of seems almost grotesque to us. And, and then these heads, and it, said, wait a minute, it says like an eagle, like a calf, like a man. So it's like that was his best guess of what they looked like. But yet, here they are. And Ezekiel and here, both of them are in the same place. They're next to God's throne. And they're worshiping God. Ezekiel drives, if you want to read Ezekiel's descriptions, it's both in chapter 1 and chapter 10 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1 and 10. Read about his descriptions of these, these creatures, these living beings. Each is a little bit different, but... And 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 people have tried to speculate. Well, the eagle represents this, and the man represents this, and they may be right. But that's not the point of this sermon. The eyes. God is all knowing and all seeing. There is nothing hidden from God. God doesn't lose anything. I walk around going, "Where, where, where did I put my keys or my phone?" Or, you know, because I lose my wall, I lost my wallet yesterday. After I was driving back, I was like, "Where did my wallet go?" Oh, it's in my cargo pan up here, pocket here, not in the one back here. God doesn't do that. He doesn't lose things. You can't hide from them. And that's part of what these creatures represent. Is it all? No. But we can't describe all what they are because, one, Scripture doesn't explain it to us. And, two, it's too indescribable. So here we are. We have these heavenly creatures. Here's John. He's worshiping. you got these four heavenly beings and 24 elders, earthly beings, and they're worshiping God together without division. Together they represent all of creation that worships God. All of creation worships God together. There's no division. And all God's children said, Alleluia. Thirdly, these elders and these living beings worship. These elders and living beings worship God's attributes. We see these attributes spelled out in verses eight and eleven. In verse eight, God's attributes, they say, is love, love, love. God is all loving. But isn't that what we say? God is love? Isn't that what a lot of people talk about? They, all they talk about God is God is love? Well, you know what? That's what they do. And in the liberal churches, progressive churches, that's what they, all they talk about. But that's not what it says here. Oh, it says mercy, mercy, mercy. Forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. Nope, it's not those either. It's not he's patient, he's patient, he's patient. God is kind, he is kind, he is kind. He is slow to anger, slow to anger, slow to anger. Are all those attributes of God? Yes. But is that what's listed here? No. It's holy, holy, holy. The number one attribute of God is holiness. It's said here, it's said in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah saw God. That's what they would describe, holy, holy, holy. It's repeated again later in Revelation. To be holy is to be set apart from everything. It's to be clean and pure. In the Old Testament, when Israel was told to consecrate themselves, they had to cleanse themselves. What did they do? They put on clean clothes. If they had an extra clothes, they could put on a clean one, or they had to wash their clothes, and they had to wash themselves. That's how they were consecrated. That's how they were made holy. That's how the priests had to be made holy before they could go into the temple or the tabernacle. They had to put on priestly garments, holy garments. God doesn't need to do that. The elders and the persecuted saints get new clean codes when they get to heaven. Scripture says that we are sanctified in our life here on earth. Consecrated, sanctified, those are synonyms. They're synonyms of holiness. As a Christian, Paul calls you as a Christian, a saint, a holy person. That's the way the Catholics talk about it. You are a holy person because God has sanctified you. If you were repented and saved and come to Christ, are you perfectly sanctified and perfectly holy? No, but you're on the path. You are holy. God has named you holy. You are set apart from the rest of the world. Whether you live or die, you are set apart from the rest of the world because God has made you holy. God is perfectly holy. Everything on earth is just like filthy rags. If you go to the cleanest surgery center on earth... If, if our sin was like earthly dirt to God, you could go to the cleanest surgery center on Earth, and compared to God, it's like the horse stable. NASA has some really cool clean rooms that they make sure they clean probes before they send them to Mars, so they don't send things with them. And that's a super clean room. They got the air filtration systems, everything. But compared to God... Now it's a mud hole. But this is not the only attribute that we see that they're worshiping. His holiness is number one. What's number two? His, etern- his, his eternity. His eternalness is his eternity. Because look at the, the, the next part of verse 8, the last line of verse 8. Who was, who is, and who is to come? In verse 9, to him who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, the last part, says we, we will worship him who lives forever and ever. Is he, the fact that he's eternal is what they worship, which is not like you and me. God describes this to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God is eternal, unlike you and me. For almost all of human history, you did not exist. Think about it. All of human history, all that stuff you study in history class, you did not exist. You have a beginning. Your parents came together and you were conceived and you began. No matter the circumstances of that event, you 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 have a starting point. God doesn't have a starting point. Think about it. everything else on this earth comes and goes. Buildings come and go. Countries come and go. Companies come and go. God doesn't. These earthly bodies have an end. And we are too painfully reminded every time we have to attend another funeral. But we know our spirit has an eternity because we are created in the image of God. So whether our spirit goes to heaven and worships God with these 24 elders and these 24 living beings, or we go to the agony of hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So they worship God's eternity. But yet there's a third attribute they worship here. And we see that in verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. They worship him as creator. Genesis tells us, is the book of beginnings, especially the first 11 chapters, we see how God started everything off. Psalm 139 tells us, you have a beginning, and God knew all about it. He knows about your entire life. Things happen in our life that surprise us. None of it surprises God. We walk by faith because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God created all. Some of those little molecules and atoms and electrons and even the, we found smaller particles than that called quarks, not the Ferengi guy on Star Trek, but these tiny things that don't obey the laws of physics as we understand them. But then he created big things, like blue whales, and moons, and planets, and stars, and solar systems, and black holes, and galaxies. Think about it. From from astronomy, we know that the universe is ever-expanding. What's it expanding into? Who created that part? Is God still creating the universe? I don't know. Maybe. He's big. We can't fathom it. He is the creator. So we have these three attributes that God are worship here in Revelation. His holiness, his eternal nature, and him as a creator. So why is Revelation 4 here? Why is this even in the Bible? What do we learn about God? Like I said, this description of God, we see that in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Tina said, he doesn't change. We learn that God is more awesome and glorious than you can even imagine. Even our most precious gemstones are just reduced to dull similes when we try to describe God. Our holy and eternal Creator. We learn that someday in heaven we will worship Him, with these twenty-four elders and with these fantastic living beings. We're going to worship the holiness of God. What we do not know about, what we do know about this is: is this event that we just read here a special occasion or just a normal Monday? Is this daily life or is this a special Sunday service? John doesn't tell us that part, but we do know that John 4 is the introduction for the events of John 5, because John didn't have chapters 4 and 5. It's all one thing. So 4 introduces 5. John sets the scene for the Lamb of God that we're going to see in, John 5, in chapter 5. But these, So these two chapters paint a picture of heaven. So what's our takeaway today? What's the application how do you react? A, Number or number one, worship is not boring. It's not a boring ritual. It's not a have to, but a get-to. The, altern- the alternative to worship in heaven is agony in hell. Think about that. That's your options. Which one do you want? Why is it boring on Earth then? Well, sometimes it's because church leaders are boring. We pick songs that are more about ourselves instead of about God. Sometimes our services are self-serving instead of heavenly-minded. Sometimes our—up, oh, I said that one already. Sometimes the traditions of men and women are raised higher than the attributes of God. We can't do it that way. That's not how we used to do it. Sometimes because you who enter this room have not experienced the saving faith of Jesus yet. You think by attending church and saying the right words, by honoring your parents, that you, that, that will be enough. It's not. Until you experience the joyous salvation of Jesus, worship may always be boring. Because worship is not a rock concert or a show. Number two, worship is not about you. It's about God. Have you ever heard somebody say, I didn't get anything out of worship today. That is an idea that is a lie from Satan. Worship is not about you. Notice in chapter 4, God is described in great detail. The worshipers are described in little detail. The worshipers only speak about God, not themselves. It's not about you. It's about God. What do we give to God? Not that he needs our worship, but he deserves our worship. So how do you approve your worship? Two ways to approve your worship. Number one, pray for it. Pray for this service each and every week. Pray for the musicians who play and sing. Pray for the pastors. Pray for each other. Look around. Pray for each other. Pray for yourself. Pray for that man or woman in the mirror that you can worship God better. Pray that you can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. Number two, worship God daily. Don't just worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. Worship every day of the week. How can you do that? Read Scripture. Every time you read Scripture, worship God that you have his words, and they have lasted for thousands of years. As we studied in Sunday school, even as a king chopping it up and throwing it in the fire doesn't stop God's word. Pray. Worship as you pray. Use these verses as part of your worship. Speak these words that the elders said to God as part of your prayer. Dear God, you are holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. Make that your prayer. How do you worship God every day? Sing with your voice, not just press play on on your MP three or whatever device you're listening to. On got too many to pick from anymore. Sing with your voice the songs of God. Sing your favorite songs that we don't sing at church. Sing the songs that we do sing at church. But sing with your voice. But I don't sing good, so what? Do it anyways. You're not doing it for each other. You're doing it for God. God knows you're a bad singer. Sing anyways. You're singing for him. You're singing for your soul, to build up your soul. How else can you worship God? Tell somebody else about his salvation. Every time you tell somebody about salvation that you have found in Jesus, you are worshiping God. You don't think about it it as worship, do you? Well, that's evangelism training. I'm not an evangelist. It doesn't matter if you're an evangelist or not. You tell somebody about God, whether it's a family member, your neighbor, or a co-worker, or somebody you're standing in line with. You don't have to go through the whole spill. You just talk about God. Every time you speak of God's blessings to others, you worship God. I don't know, I've don't. i never thought of myself as an evangelist, but every place I've ever worked, everybody always knew I was a Christian. Even before I was in the ministry, before I was an army chaplain. When I was a computer programmer, everybody always knew I was a Christian. People when I was in school knew I was a Christian, but yet I wasn't an evangelist. I didn't go out passing out tracts and say, if, if you die today, do you know where, you go, where your soul would go? i would just never been able to do that well. But everybody always knew I was a Christian. How? I guess I talk about him a lot because people would come to me with Bible questions. So every time you speak of God's blessings, every time you repeat God's word to another, it's worship to God. So as you encourage one another, in this room, as you encourage one another, you are worshiping God. When you say, "Don't remember, don't forget that the scripture says," you are worshiping God. And people ask, "Well, can't I worship God outside in nature on the golf course?" Absolutely, yes. Do it, just not on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. (laughs) That is the time that we come together and worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, a poor reflection of what we're going to do in heaven. Because we're going to do this in heaven too, except we're going to do it much better. You're going to have much better musicians. You're going to have a much better congregational singing. You're going to have much better preachers. we're going to do it in heaven. Worship God when you're alone all the days of the week. But come together and worship God with your brothers and sisters. 10.30 a.m. Central Time. Don't quit worshiping the holy, eternal creator, God. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for all that you provide. We thank you for this scripture that is here. Help us to worship you each and every day. Whether it's a short time or a long time, each day, help us to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.